Father, as we come to your word now, we remember that your word is perfect. Your word is infallible. We remember that your work, that your word accomplishes your work in us, of sanctifying us. We thank you for your word. We remember that your word is entirely true, and we trust in it. We remember also that it will not return void. It will never, ever not accomplish what you intend for it to accomplish. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would give us humble spirits to receive your word today. We pray for our children. We pray for their salvation as well in due time. We pray that seeds of the gospel would be planted deep in their hearts. And we pray, Lord, that a generation would come after us in them that would be fiercely and faithfully committed to obeying you and to glorifying Christ. And we pray for ourselves now, Lord, that you would give us understanding through your Spirit. We pray that you would not only give us understanding, but that you would give us comfort, that you would give us conviction, that you would teach us to love what you love, that you would teach us to hate the things that you hate. So we pray, Lord, that during this time you would protect us from things like apathy or arrogance or just not caring about what your word says. Father, protect us from that and help us to feast on your word like hungry, hungry servants that we are. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 11. We're in John chapter 11 today, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 to 16. John chapter 11, verses 7 to 16. As we continue studying the 11th chapter of John, it's good to remember what we saw in the 10th chapter of John. Because remember, the, the, the chapter breaks are not inspired. They weren't originally there. Originally, you would have read John's text uh, straight from chapter 10 right through to chapter 11 and not realize that there was any kind of, of break there. That's the way it's intended to be read. But what we need to remember is that the 10th chapter of John's Gospel presented Jesus as the Good Shepherd. But not just as the Good Shepherd. It presented Jesus as the Sovereign God who is faithful to His people until the end. He is the Sovereign Shepherd who knows His sheep, who calls His sheep, and whose sheep follow Him. He knows His sheep, and His sheep know Him. He calls them by name and they follow Him. He protects them. And He provides for their every need. And no one can enter into His sheep except through Him. And nobody can harm His sheep without dealing with Him. Nobody can snatch His sheep from His hand. He is the sovereign God who not only is the author of our salvation, but He is the finisher of our salvation. He not only begins our salvation in His sovereign goodness, but He ends our salvation in glorification in His sovereign goodness. And He guarantees that nobody can stop Him from doing that. The doctrine of God's sovereignty. Friends, in, in dark times, we need this doctrine. This doctrine is such an incredible comfort. It's such an incredible encouragement. And the more we understand God's sovereignty, the more comfort we're going to find in it. When we understand 
that nothing can happen to us or to anyone anywhere. Nothing can happen, period, apart from God's sovereign decree. It relieves us from things that might otherwise give us a lot of anxiety and distress. Charles Spurgeon had a very high view and a right view of God's sovereignty. And that was reflected in one of his famous quotes. He said this, he said, quote, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. End quote. You ever had one of those nights where you're up worrying and you can't sleep because you're worrying? And maybe you start worrying about the fact that you're not even able to sleep. And what are you going to do the next day if you don't get any sleep? And it becomes a vicious circle. God's sovereignty gives us relief from needing to worry unnecessarily. And yet, there are some who completely misunderstand the sovereignty of God and perhaps even take it too far. So far as to nullify man's responsibility. J. Vernon McGee was a fantastic Bible expositor who had a well-known Bible teaching ministry in the previous century. He once told of a man who had been studying and, and gaining a much deeper understanding of the doctrine of, uh, of predestination and, and how that relates to God's sovereignty. And in doing so, in, in, in studying this doctrine, this man became so convinced of God's sovereign protection over the believer in every circumstance of life that at one point in his ministry, this man came to, uh, to Dr. McGee and said this. He said, quote, You know, sir, I'm so convinced that God is keeping me no matter what I do that I think I could step right out into the midst of the busiest traffic. And if my time had not come, I would be perfectly safe. <laughs> Dr. McGee, he was very funny. He was so quick-witted and kind of snarky at times. He, he replied by saying this, Brother, if you step out into the midst of busy traffic, your time has come. <laughs> Another example of a group of people who have taken the doctrine of God's sovereignty too far would be a group that we refer to as hyper-Calvinists. Uh, they would argue that uh, we don't need to go out and evangelize since it's God who is sovereign over salvation. If He wants to draw somebody to Christ, He can do it, but He doesn't need or He doesn't use us. And of course, the problem with that, I, I hope, is, is pretty evident. God not only ordains the end, that, that His people would be saved, but He ordains the means to the end. He ordains that at some point, His people will hear the Gospel and they will believe. The means by which God calls a sinner to repent and believe, the means by which He draws a person to Christ is through His people evangelizing. Through His people preaching and sharing the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So let's be clear about this much. God's sovereignty does not nullify human responsibility. Think about it for a second. If it did, if God's sovereignty nullified man's responsibility, what use would there be for wisdom literature and Scripture? What good would it do us to, to learn anything from the Bible if God's sovereignty implies that we have no responsibility to be wise and to be uh, prudent and to be d discerning? Uh, you know, there's an element of mystery, yes, between God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility, 
But still, there is a balance to be found between these two things, between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. But for now, let's just establish this much. If you either deny, if you deny either God's sovereignty or man's responsibility, you are in error. And you may even find yourself in the grave if you think that you can just step out into traffic because God is so sovereign. If you think that God's sovereignty gives us permission to do what is just blatantly foolish, unnecessarily foolish, it could spell disaster. We therefore must be wise in trying to find the balance between these two important doctrines. And wisdom would have us search for that right balance, that right perspective in every aspect of our lives. Wisdom would have us understand that we only have one life to live on this earth. And that with every passing day, with every passing hour, with every passing moment, our time is running out. Wisdom would have us realize that with this being the case, we must make the most of our time here on earth. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, He's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and He says that we are to seek first His kingdom and righteousness. Isn't God supposed to be glorified in the lives of His people? Then we must not waste our lives. We must seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. We must live knowing that God's purpose in our salvation is not our comfort, it's His glory. And and who knows how much time we have left on earth. Is it possible, just possible, that one of us could be driving home today and have a heart attack? Is it possible that one of us could be uh, having dinner tonight and, and we choke and die? It's always possible. We don't know when our end is. Nobody knows. And so we must make the most of our time. And that's what the passage uh, we'll be looking at today deals with. Using our time wisely for the glory of God. We've seen that Jesus has gone out into this region beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist had once ministered. And that many, while Jesus is out there, many came to believe in Him. Uh, But at some point, Mary and Martha we saw in the previous passage, had sent word to Jesus that their brother, Lazarus, whom Jesus loved, had fallen ill. And John told us that because Jesus loved these three so much, He didn't go to remedy their situation immediately. Instead, because He loved them, He waited. He delayed. He stayed two days longer in the place where He was because He loved them. The principle there was that more important than the comfort and the healing of Lazarus was the glory of Christ, which would be displayed in Lazarus being raised from the dead. And more important was that Lazarus and his two sisters and the disciples and Lazarus' friends who would come to believe that they would all gain a bigger vision for life than their own comfort and well-being just in the here and now. But that they would see that there's something more important than these things in life. The disciples in particular would need to develop a greater understanding of God's sovereignty. If you know what happened after Jesus 
ascended, if you know that eventually there was great persecution that came upon the early church and that the apostles had to run for their lives basically, but that they were martyred, they would need to understand God's sovereignty. Will the risk in this situation, the passage that we're looking at today, will the risk of danger, perhaps a situation that's so dangerous that it could even result in their death, would that prevent them from obeying Christ, from following Jesus? As this passage unfolds, we're going to see that that's indeed the inclination of their flesh. And yet, they come to understand that using our time on earth wisely can sometimes indeed involve risk, maybe even great risk. And yet, what they understand by the end of this passage is that Jesus and His glory are worth even serious risk. So let's start by looking at verses 7 and 8. John chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going to go there again? Now as you consider what Jesus says there, first of all, Consider what he does not say. After two days have passed since he got word of Lazarus being ill, he doesn't now say, okay, now I'm going to go to Judea. The disciples weren't going to be able to do anything except follow Jesus, right? They're not going to be able to remedy Lazarus' situation, but he wants them to accompany him. He wants them to follow him there so that they can witness what's about to happen. And so he gently and graciously says, let us go instead of I'm going to go. It's an invitation for them to come with him and to witness and to learn. He also doesn't say, let's go see Lazarus. He doesn't say, let's go and and be with Mary and Martha as they grieve their brother's death. And and it's not that it would have been wrong for him to, to say those things. He also doesn't say, let's go to Bethany, even though that's where they're going. They're going to where Lazarus and Mary and Martha lived, and they lived in Bethany. No, what does he say? He says, let's go to Judea again. Now, Jesus always, always speaks very wisely. He always chooses his words very carefully. So why did he refer to the region of Judea instead of saying, let's go to Bethany, or instead of saying, let's go see Lazarus, Mary, and and Martha? And the answer is found by considering what we read in verse 39 of the previous chapter where Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees after claiming to be God in the flesh and we are therefore told, therefore, they were seeking again to seize Him. And we see here in this passage that the idea was they wanted to seize Him to stone Him. And the disciples knew it. So to re-enter the region of Judea in their minds was dangerous. It was risky, and, and Jesus knew that that was their perception of it. He knew that there was, there was danger there. The disciples obviously knew that there was danger there. In their mind, the region represents what would be almost certainly a cruel death, a painful death. Not only for Jesus, but possibly, if not likely, for all of them. So why does Jesus say, let us go to Judea again? The answer is to test the disciples. 
Jesus knows the hearts of men. He knows His sheep. A shepherd knows what scares his sheep, by the way. And Jesus certainly knew that the idea of going back where they were before, going back into the region of Judea, scared his disciples. And yet, he makes it clear that that's exactly where he intends to lead them. How many of you know that following Jesus can mean some dangerous stuff? Following Jesus means going wherever He leads us, doing whatever He's instructed us to do in, in our day and age. That can be costly. It might even cost us everything. As the American church grows less and less influential and less and less trendy, let's be honest, it's less and less trendy. As the teachings of Scripture are coming more and more into direct conflict with the worldly ideologies that are currently increasing, we would be wise, we would be very wise to understand that truly following Jesus often involves great risk. In our day, if you believe what the Bible says, it can cost you your job. It might cost you every worldly comfort. And as this reality sets in, churches that are faithful to Scripture and willing to hold the line are facing some risk. And they have to be fully aware of the fact that even darker, more costly times may be ahead of us still. Just 20 years ago, it didn't cost you anything to be a Christian. People think you're kind of crazy, but it didn't cost you anything. But it certainly can now, can't it? Maybe you'll have your social media account shut down. Maybe a bank will refuse to do business with you if they know that you affirm what the Bible says. Maybe your employer will fire you. It's possible. It's possible. It, I mean, it's happening, isn't it? So the question is, will you follow Jesus even if it's costly. Will you follow Jesus when it's risky? A.W. Pink notes this. He says, quote, When we are led by Him, Jesus, of course, when we are led by Him, it is usually into the place of testing and trial, the place where the flesh ever, ever shrinks from. End quote. Will you follow even when it's costly? See, the disciples knew that the Pharisees in the region of Judea had every intention of killing Jesus, of seizing him and stoning him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God in the previous chapter. And so the disciples are startled that Jesus would even suggest going back into Judea. They're afraid. It's as if they're saying to Jesus, Jesus, aren't you scared of what they want to do to you? We are. We are. And they know that there's a possibility that if Jesus suffers that fate, maybe they will too. Why do you think Peter denies him three times later on? In the moment, the disciples seem to have missed the fact that the Pharisees had sought to seize Jesus on multiple occasions. You can go back to chapter 7 and see multiple times that they tried to seize him and they couldn't. In the previous chapter, they tried to seize him again, but they couldn't. The reality is, Jesus being fully God could not be seized until he allowed them to. But this is what happens 
when the fears of the flesh rise up, isn't it? Here's what happens when the fears of the flesh rise up. We forget who God is. We forget who Jesus is. We forget what He can do. We forget that He's sovereign. The disciples are no different than we are. They've seen Jesus elude their seizing countless times. And they're still afraid of what might happen. Will you follow Jesus even when there is a great cost? He invites us to trust Him enough that we would. That we would follow Him regardless of the cost. He's sovereign, yes, and yet you and I, we recognize we have a responsibility to put our faith into action and follow Him even when it can be risky, dangerous, and costly. So I would urge you today, friends, to never ever allow fear to be the thing that prevents you from following Jesus faithfully. Not fear of man, not fear of losing your job, not fear of losing earthly comforts. How about this? Not fear of disease and not fear of death. Not even fear of being penalized by a tyrant governor who mistakenly thinks that he has authority over the church. Who's the head of the church? Jesus is. Not a governor. Jesus still often leads his people into situations that, from our perspective at least, seem risky. Circumstances where we at least face the temptation to be led by fear rather than being led by the God whose sovereignty over all things should assuage or or should calm our fears. He often leads us to places and to doing things that we never would have chosen for ourselves. Guess what? You never would have chosen God for yourself. You never would have chosen Jesus for yourself. Because the flesh can't do anything good. But friends, as His people, we have to remember that the path that sheep walk is not one of their own choosing. They simply follow the shepherd. They follow the shepherd wherever the shepherd goes. The principle applies to us as Christ's sheep as well. If if the twelve disciples hadn't followed Jesus, they wouldn't have witnessed and learned from what would take place in Bethany their faith would have remained exactly where it is. Maybe it's always in a, it's always tempt, the temptation is always for it to go down. But they would miss this opportunity for it to be blown up and increased by seeing Lazarus raised from the dead. Jesus is leading them to a place where their flesh will shrink and where their faith will grow. And likewise, friends, if we don't follow Jesus faithfully, we too will miss out on so many lessons on grace and providence and God's sovereignty playing out right before our very eyes in our own lives. We must be mindful of these things as it becomes more and more costly to be a Christian in our country. In the words of Puritan preacher and author William Grinnell, Quote, let thy hope of heaven master thy fear of death. Our hope of heaven must be greater than our fear of death. Or of any consequence, persecution or whatever, for doing what is good and right in God's eyes. 
Don't let fear prevent you from obeying the Lord and living your life for the glory of God. If Jesus leads you, what do you have to fear? What do you really have to fear if Jesus is leading you? Is He not sovereign over life and death? He is. And even in death, hasn't He promised that none could snatch us from His hand? Later in this chapter, Jesus is going to say, He who believes in Me will live even if He dies. So what do we have to be afraid of? Death? No. So do not be governed by fear. Do not be misled by fear. Instead, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. He is all sovereign and all wise. You are not. I am not. He knows way better than than you do, way better than I do, which road is best for us to take. And so therefore, let us resolve to follow Him faithfully and obediently, however high the cost might be. Jesus responds to the, I guess, apprehension is what you'd call it. The, the lack of desire, it's not, amp, uh, uh, it's not apathy, the apprehension of the disciples by reminding them of a very important principle when it comes to going into risky situations for the sake of Jesus. And that's this. The time that they have, the time that the disciples have to do what they're called to do is limited. And so they must work while they can. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This has thrown a lot of people off. Uh, this, this particular passage right here, these two verses right here, what we need to understand is that there were no clocks in Jesus' time. They, they didn't have electricity. Uh, and so what they did to divide the day is they divided it into uh, two parts, which actually makes perfect sense, right? Night and day. And those would each consist of 12 hours. The first 12 hours would have been from sunrise to sunset, and the other 12 hours would have been from sunset to sunrise. Day and night divided the day, and each was 12 hours regardless of the season of the year. And so we recognize today that it wasn't exactly 12 hours each, but that was the way that they divided the day. Given that there was no electricity, and therefore no street lights, no flashlights, no lit paths, or anything like that, a worker had to be done with his work by the time the sun went down every day. If you were stuck out in a field at night, not only might you not find your way home, and that was a dangerous place to be because the temperatures in that region get very, very cold at night, even in the summertime, So you didn't want to be left working in the dark, but you also couldn't work in the darkness. You had to work while there was light. You had to work while the sun was up. If a person was too afraid to go outside while the sun was up, they would not accomplish their work for the day. 
So what does Jesus mean when He responds this way to the disciples? What He means is that there's a limited amount of time to do the work to which we've been called. There's a limited amount of time to do the work to which we've been called. What's the principle? The principle is life is short. Our time is short. And thus we must make the most of every day. We must take advantage of every opportunity we have to obey God and to glorify God because nighttime is coming. What do we do at night? We sleep. Now we're about to get to that with Lazarus in a few minutes here. But we don't work at night is kind of the principle that Jesus is using here. We have to work while we can. The disciples were afraid to do the work that Christ was calling them to do because they were afraid of death. And so Jesus is essentially just yanking the leash right back out of death's hands and reminding the disciples that God had given them, each one of them and each one of us, an allotted time to work and that they must not allow the fear of death to prevent the disciples from making the most of their time that they had to work in. I mean, doesn't Jesus exemplify this? He exemplifies fearless obedience. He knew that it was the Father's will to crush Him, to impute the sins of the elect to Him, and that He would die a sinner's death, even though He never sinned. Yet He also knew that nothing could happen to Him until that time came. He entrusted Himself into the Father's hands, even when it meant incredible pain, incredible suffering, and incredible humiliation. And Peter learned this lesson well also, and would eventually write in his first epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21-23, to For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, He uttered no threats, but kept entrusting Himself to Him who judges righteously. Christ is our example of this. He worked while He could, knowing that His time, the time of His earthly ministry was limited, knowing that it would all culminate in leading to the cross, that it would involve suffering, Jesus is our example when it comes to being led by obedience to God rather than being led by fear or prevented from following Jesus because of fear or, or, or risk or death or anything else. But there's something else that we have to consider when we're talking about the amount of time that we're allotted in, uh, in this life to do what God has called us to do. We must understand that God has determined that our final breath will be whenever He has decreed it, just as surely as He's determined when our first breath would be. That means that neither you nor I can live longer than God has decreed. And neither you nor I can live a life that's any shorter than God has decreed. And again, Jesus is our example in this. The Father sent the Son into the world to accomplish a particular work. And Jesus would complete that work on the day that God had eternally decreed. And it was literally impossible for the enemies of Jesus to take His life before that time. 
The Bible tells us, Psalm 139, verse 16, that all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Go to that for comfort. There's a picture of God's sovereignty. What that means is that God has given you and me and and everyone else an allotted amount of time. We have to make the most of that time. And understanding that we are essentially invincible, we are essentially immortal until the millisecond that God has ordained for our time in this life to expire, that should give us comfort. And that should give us courage and confidence to obey Him and to follow Christ until our last breath, even when it's costly. Can you make the sun set half an hour earlier today? Who can do that? None of you. Not me. What about making the sun set half an hour later? What about one minute later? What about one second later? And we say, you know, that's kind of a silly thought, isn't it, right? Yeah, it is. But so is the idea that we can die one second sooner than the time that God has ordained for us to die. Jesus' question, are there not 12 hours in the day, implies that God has given us not only an allotted amount of time, but that He has given us sufficient time to do what He has intended for us to do. Therefore, be wise with your time. You don't have to be frantic. Certainly don't be fearful. Be faithful. Be faithful, and that's enough. Yes, we're immortal until the sun sets on our lives, so to speak. At the same time, however, that doesn't mean that we should take foolish chances, foolish and unnecessary chances, and put ourselves at risk unnecessarily, expecting God to protect us, like stepping out into traffic. God has given us sufficient time, so we don't need to take shortcuts. We also don't want to be hindered in our work by fear. Wisdom would have us find the balance. Wisdom would have us use our time obeying God regardless of any temporal consequences, but without endangering ourselves unnecessarily. Sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's not. Wisdom is knowing which is which. We have to make wise decisions about how we live our lives and avoid putting ourselves in harm's way unnecessarily. But ultimately, what that means is trusting God, trusting that He's sovereign and in control of all things, even when it seems risky, even when it's costly. This is why Jesus wanted to lead the disciples back to Judea, so that they would understand these things. And I hope that you understand them too. It's going to motivate the disciples to to follow Him faithfully. I hope it also motivates you to follow Jesus, even when it's risky, even when it's possibly costly. Now, maybe the disciples weren't completely convinced yet. But either way, Jesus continues explaining why they must go to Judea. Let's look at verses 11 to 16. John writes, This He said, And after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe." 
but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. See, the disciples completely misunderstood what Jesus meant when he said that Lazarus was sleeping. They're thinking physically. They're thinking literally. They're immediately thinking that if Lazarus has just taken a nap, why are we putting ourselves at risk? Why, why even go? He's just going to wake up and everything's going to be fine. And so Jesus clarified for them that he wasn't speaking literally, but that he was speaking spiritually or figuratively. He was saying that Lazarus was dead. He was using the word sleep as a euphemism for death. And this is one of many, many places, especially in the New Testament, where death is likened to sleep. Uh, Jesus, for example, was summoned to help a family whose daughter had died, and he responded in Matthew 9, 24, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Uh, Luke also tells us in Acts chapter 7, verse 60, uh, that when Stephen, the martyr, uh, died, when he was killed, he fell asleep. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul refers to Christians who have died as those uh, who have fallen asleep in Christ. That's chapter 15, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. So this isn't to imply, this word doesn't imply that the soul of the deceased sleeps and, and doesn't immediately go to heaven. Uh, Paul wrote in Philippians, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. A couple verses later, he'd explain why death is gain, writing, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's why it was gain if he were to die. If he were to die, his soul would not sleep. Rather, it would immediately go to be with Christ in glory. That's why he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, that to be away from the body is for our soul to be at home with the Lord. So why does Jesus use this euphemism? Why does he call it sleep? Is he just trying to soften the blow? Is he just trying to say it in a nice way rather than you know, putting it bluntly? I don't think so. I think Jesus uses the term sleep for some very specific reasons. There are some implications of sleep that carry over to the death of believers that we should understand. So there are at least a, at least a couple reasons for this. Uh, first of all, that's what we do at night, right? It's, it signifies, night signifies the time when the person's work is done. If we're looking at the context here, that's kind of related to what Jesus had just said. But more specifically, sleep is just temporary. It's not a permanent state. It's just a temporary state. There will be a day, should our bodies die and our souls go to be with Christ in glory, when our souls and our bodies will be reunited in a resurrection unto life. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 43 to 44, where he says this of our, of our mortal bodies, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. I think another reason that Jesus uses this euphemism is that given that uh, death of our mortal bodies is only temporary, it also isn't harmful. It's not ultimately harmful. Sleep isn't harmful, right? Sleep is actually good for us. We need sleep. It's not harmful. And the same is true about death 
for those who are in Christ. It's not harmful. It does the Christian absolutely no harm. Death has lost its sting, hasn't it? Now that isn't to say that death can't be intimidating. Sure it can be. But only to an extent. Note that in the 23rd Psalm, the psalmist David writes about going through the valley of the shadow of death. It doesn't say that we go through the valley of death. What's the difference? A shadow can't hurt you. A shadow can't do you any harm. In Matthew Henry's words, quote, the shadow of a serpent will not sting nor the shadow of a sword kill, end quote. Now, it can be frightening to stand in the shadow of a poisonous serpent or in the, in the shadow of, uh, of a sword, but the shadow itself can't harm us. For the Christian, we have to understand that death cannot harm us. It only delivers us into the presence of Christ. Maybe another reason that Jesus refers to death as sleep is because rather than being harmful for the body, it's, it's good. It's beneficial. There's something to be gained by doing it. Isn't sleep a, a welcomed relief after a day full of difficult work and maybe a day full of sorrows? I mean, how many of you have had a hard day at some point and you just start thinking to yourself, man, I, I just can't wait to go to sleep tonight. Or, or maybe, I, I just need to take a nap. I mean, that's what you do with a kid when they're having a tough day, right? Uh, we put them down for a nap. We let them sleep. For the Christian, death is a relief from the toil and from the sorrows of this life. All of this, all these reasons should remind us that death is not the worst thing that could ever happen to us. What's the worst thing that could happen to us? Maybe that Christ would abandon us, that He would leave us. But He's already promised that He's not going to do that. It's not going to happen. He promised it won't. He's promised to hold us firm and that not one of His sheep will be lost from His hand. So really, what's the worst that could happen to us if we're just faithfully being obedient to Jesus, entrusting ourselves to Him? For those who follow after Christ in faith, physical death is just the road that leads to Christ's presence. Death is on the journey that leads to eternal life. But for those, we have to understand this too, for those who die and have never repented and have never believed in Jesus, death is only the beginning of their problems. There is a second death that awaits them that is far worse than the first. Revelation 20 verse 6 says this of the future resurrection of those who believed in Jesus, which is to come. It says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But for those who have refused to believe, I have to warn you of this. That we read this in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. It tells us of the terrible fate that awaits those who do not believe after death. It says of the future resurrection and judgment of those who would not believe in Jesus. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
That is far worse than any kind of death that you could have in this life. And yet, that is what awaits those who do not and will not believe in Jesus. So how do you ensure that your name is written in the book of life and thereby avoid this terrible, terrible fate? You must repent and believe in Jesus. Whatever you think your hope is, whatever you're counting on to to give you a good standing before God someday, apart from Christ, cast it away. Do you trust that you're just a good enough person that God's just going to look the other way on your sin? He's not. Cast that sense of goodness away. God says you have none. You have no goodness on your own. Do you trust in your self-sufficiency? What a terrible illusion. And what a blessed thing it is to lose confidence in that illusion. Trust in nothing but Christ and His righteousness. And the righteousness that He imputes, that He gives, that He transfers to all who believe in Him. Turn from your wickedness. Call on Christ. Cling to Him and you will be saved. He is more eager to receive you than you have ever been to reject His free offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So seek Him while He may be found. That's the only way to avoid that terrible fate described in Revelation chapter 20. So Jesus goes on to say something kind of strange. He says that he was glad that he wasn't there when Lazarus died. That reminds us once again that there is something more important than comfort in life. And there are at least two reasons that we can find here in the text that Jesus says he's glad. First, he knows what he's going to do. He knows that he's going to go there and to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he said back in verse 11, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The second reason that he was glad, as A.W. Pink notes, is that, quote, the disciples would now be able to witness a higher manifestation of his glory than what they otherwise would had he been present while Lazarus was sick. And he goes on to note, quote, the implication is plain. What the Lord unmistakably signified here was that it was inconsistent with his presence that one should die in it. End quote. So the disciples are confused. The disciples are afraid. They're they're counting the cost. And they're saying, it seems like it's too much. But Thomas says something. Thomas is the one to speak. How often is Thomas the one to speak? Almost never. At least Thomas, if none of the others, understood at this point that if following Jesus meant risking death, so be it. If following Jesus was going to be costly, we'll pay as much as we can. It was a risk worth taking. If he was going to die, at least he was going to die walking in obedience to Jesus. Thomas, he's famous for his doubt, right? That's what we all refer to him as, doubting Thomas, right? That's where the expression comes from. He's famous for his doubt, but right here, what Thomas gives us is a picture of the heart of a true disciple of Jesus who loves Jesus and who values Jesus more than he values his own life. He loves and values Jesus more than he valued and sought to protect and preserve his own life. 
he understands that Jesus is worth it. That there's no risk that's too great for us to take when it comes to following Jesus. To follow Jesus means to leave behind the things of the flesh that the flesh would have us do. The the way of Christ is not the way of the flesh. And thus, whatever the flesh would have us do must be scorned, must be cast away, must be turned from, must be repented of, in order that we may follow the example that Thomas, of all people, sets for us here. Why would we forsake the works and the ways of the flesh? Because Jesus is worth it. Because the ways and the works of the flesh prevent us from using our time wisely for the glory of God and for the growth of our faith. Because the ways and works of the flesh will cause us to waste our lives focusing on things like our comfort and our well-being and things that we prefer rather than following the path that Christ has laid out before us. That road, friends, is a narrow road. The path is narrow that leads to life. It's narrow. It's steep. It's often risky. But the reward is worth it because that's the road that leads to life everlasting. If you believe in Jesus, if you believe what He promised about life and death, it transforms your entire approach to everything in life. It'll help you to see that your greatest purpose in life is not to preserve your own life at all costs. Like the disciples, our flesh could so easily incline us to just keep taking the easy way out. Avoid conflict. Avoid trouble. Avoid risk every single time. But Jesus calls us to make the most of our time. To seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. To serve and work for the glory of God with the time that He's given us. And the Spirit dwelling within us enables that calling. Friends, the sun is shining on you. It's cloudy outside today, but the sun is shining on you. If if you're listening to this, it's daytime for you. It's a time for you to be working It's time given to you by God for the purpose of following Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 We are His worksmanship created in Christ Jesus for the good works that He has laid out before us. We must work. We don't work uh, to be saved. We work because we are saved. Because if the Lord tarries in returning... Nighttime is coming for every single one of us. Death, sleep is coming for every single one of us. For those in Christ, however, we have nothing to fear because Christ has made this promise, which we'll look at next time. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. If you believed in Jesus, let this blessed assurance, this blessed confidence be yours and cling to it by faith. Live by it all for the glory of Christ who is worth the highest risk and beyond.
Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would cleanse our hearts of apathy or apprehension when it comes to following Jesus. Lord, you know that in our flesh there is no good. You know that our flesh would incline us to constantly find an easier way, a way that doesn't involve risk. But Father, you call us onto dangerous roads at times. Help us to remember that we don't go alone, but that you go with us. And we pray that by the power of your Spirit working within us, that we would be driven by faithfulness rather than fear. Help us to be bold. Help us to have courage. Because that's what it takes to shine your light in the darkness. And we understand and desire to do what you've called us to do. All for the glory of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.